This is the L2 Capital Podcast with Hedge Fund Manager Marcelo Lopez. The L2 Capital Podcast focuses on potential opportunities in the market and brings to your industry leaders and an intelligent conversation about their respective areas of expertise. And now, here's your host, Marcelo Lopez. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the L2 Capital Podcast. I have the pleasure to talk today to another Brazilian, Otavio Costa, mostly known in the financial markets as Tavi Costa. Tavi is a portfolio manager at Prescott Capital, and he's responsible for macro research. So, Tavi, thank you for coming to this program. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Hey, thanks, Marcelo. It's a, it's a pleasure to talk to you as well, and I look forward to this conversation. So, before we start talking about the macro picture, could you please tell us a little bit about yourself and Prescott? Capital. Absolutely. So um, I'm the portfolio manager now at Crescat Capital. I started work here about six years ago. Uh, we cover, you know, more of a, this is a, a global macro hedge fund and uh, uh, we we develop uh, macro themes through our uh, systematic models. And But it's very much of a discretionary uh, strategy, uh, if anything. And uh, uh, today, uh, if we're going to look at the, the markets in general, our three high conviction themes are uh, the U.S. being at the, at the very uh, late stages of the business cycle, gold being a very attractive uh, asset to to hold if, if there is a, such a downturn in the cycle. And the third one would be China and Hong Kong being uh, perhaps one of the largest credit bubbles we've seen. But uh, uh, here at Crescat, we manage uh, uh, two portfolios uh, or uh, hedge funds, uh, a global macro and a long short. Uh, we also have a, a large cap uh, strategy, which is which is an SMA. And also uh, uh, now we just launched a new uh, strategy that only focuses on uh, on mining stocks in, in gold and silver uh, space. Uh, I've been, uh, I was born and raised in Brazil and moved here to the U.S. to uh, play tennis in, in college back about 10 uh, to uh, 10 years ago. And uh, I moved here to Denver and now live here about seven years or so. Brilliant. Thank you for that. So um, you, you mentioned these uh, three big things that you're looking at at the moment. Do you think we are in a major credit bubble now? Do you look at the amount of outstanding triple B bonds out there and think... Uh well, gee, if something happens, there's going to be a lot of trouble ahead. Yes, we do. Uh, I, I think that more globally, though, I think the problems in terms of leverage are coming from places like China and Hong Kong and, you know, perhaps Australia and Canada as well being part of that as more of a derivative of the, the issue. Now in the U.S., I, I personally believe that it's it's more a, a, a distortion of prices uh, relative to fundamentals in general. And, you know, several uh, macro indicators are now pointing us to uh, to perhaps a, a turn in the cycle. In terms of the the corporate debt market, yes, uh, we do uh, pay close attention to that. And now, uh, recently, especially on the on the leverage loan side, uh, which uh, you know reminds us a lot of uh, of those um, of, of those products in the housing market in 08 and 07, uh, prior to the global financial crisis, with uh, CLOs now packaging those leverage loans, and and now you look at the prices of those bonds is starting to uh, to falter. And um, I think that. You know, divergence with uh, with junk bonds and, and the market overall looks quite interesting, especially as a as a bearish sign. But uh, um, yeah, I think the distortion here in the U.S. is is mostly due to uh, asset prices in general being uh, uh, historically uh, high uh, relative or across almost every asset class you can think of here in the U.S. Um, and you know, I think we're starting to uh, have a transition now, especially on investor mindset of of starting to uh, to really focus on uh, on 
more profitable projects and profitable investments in general. One good example of that was obviously the WeWork situation of, of uh, now we have a ton of IPO, recent IPOs, you know, kind of uh, um, having issues to uh, to to uh, perform well in this environment. I think that's all uh, very uh, uh, telling of, of, of where we are in the cycle and, and how uh, things are likely to play out uh, in the near future. Brilliant. So you, you believe we are at the end of the business cycle. And uh, you also mentioned on Twitter, Beyond Meat, Amazon and Netflix. Are they the leading indicators in the US stock market? I think so. I think the FANG stocks, you know, aside from Google, if you look at Netflix now down close to 20% from its highs and Amazon and, and Facebook uh, doing quite the same thing down close to 10 to 15%, depending on the stock. And um, Google is the only one that's still, you know, near all time highs. And uh, when you look at NASDAQ, for instance, is definitely a, another uh, separation there, which NASDAQ is very close to all time highs today. I believe it's about 1% or two percentage points away from that. Um, but, you know, it's just, a, uh, I think the, the macro factors are, are really uh, screaming, uh, uh, perhaps a recession ahead here. I think the probability of that is, is really high. I mean, we have, you know, either, I mean, there's so many indicators. I'll give you one, for instance, you know, we look at things like consumer confidence and unemployment rate. And when you look at that, you know, those tend to be very reliable, contrarian indicators. They, they most likely, they most most of the times are very correlated to the changes in the business cycle. Uh, and if you create a ratio of that, just look at the consumer confidence uh, provided by the conference board relative to unemployment rate. Uh, what you see there is that that ratio is now retesting levels that happened during the tech bust and the 1970 recession. Um, so, you know, I, I think what it tells you is that perhaps consumer confidence have reached an extreme and unemployment rate or the labor market um, can't really get stronger than what it is today. And we're starting to see some turns now, you know, job openings is starting to fall. When you look at that on a year over year basis relative to GDP, you can see that that has also a very high correlation to GDP changes. And just in general, the breath deterioration in S&P 500 now, now the percentage of, uh, of members in S&P 500 below 100 uh, days uh, moving averages is now trending lower. And, and, and I think the major, I think the, the major part of this whole bearish thesis is really on the yield curve inversions. Uh, yield curve inversions, I mean, there's so many ways you can look at that. One way uh, that we created here at Crestcat was just looking at the percentage of yield curve inversions. Um, and uh, we reached close to 70% of the yield curve was inverted in the US. So we're looking across all yields, right? 30-year yields, 10-year yields, all the way uh, to uh, to the Fed funds rate, which is uh, overnight rate. When we look at those spreads, uh, 44 possible spreads, uh, and 70% of those are actually were actually inverted last month. Um, and that's I think that that's, uh, that's also very telling because every time you had that in history, you either coincided with the recession or actually preceded a recession or were very close to recession too. So I think there, uh, this is not just, uh, um, you know, just only problems. I think there, there, there are parts of the economy or, or, or assets that can do really well in an environment like this, like precious metals. But I do believe very strongly that, you know, the macro environment is is, is certainly uh, deteriorating uh, significantly in the last few months and years. And I think we're getting close to an inflection point here. Interesting. Uh, we're going to talk about precious metals soon, but just to stay on the theme for a little while, while, do you think negative rates are coming to the U.S.? Personally, I'm not a fan of, of how people are saying that this is kind of a easy trade, that, you know, interest rates are going to go negative. And I, I, you know, what we're seeing today actually is is that uh, interest rates are, are very low in the U.S. at the same time as now inflation is starting to pick up, especially core CPI and also median CPI. You can 
can see both now uh, being at a decade high. And that's, you know, and the other other thing you can look at is is also there's a Michigan University uh, survey looking at outlook for for rising prices now at a fresh 40-year low, which shows goes to show how the consumer and the households in general in the U.S. and investors are not really perceiving any any type of risk in terms of inflation going forward. You know, I don't necessarily share that thought. I actually think that there is a you know high probability of of, of inflationary forces here picking up in, in recently. So I don't think it's a, it's an easy trade to just get long treasuries and 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 go for the ride of of going uh, negative on yields. So in terms of ten years and thirty year yields, I don't think that that's perhaps a, a you know my my it's it's not even close to my uh, high conviction trade at all. In terms of the Fed funds rate, I think it's it's possible. I think that that's uh, um, you know the Fed uh, reducing rates even more aggressively as we've seen that uh, monetary policy has become uh, more and more aggressive over the years and across different business cycles since the 80s um, has been uh, getting worse and worse or more and more aggressive. So I think that that part is is quite possible. But on the 10-year and 30-year yields, you know, it's not a bet that we're necessarily taking in a portfolio. The one bet in terms of rates that we're taking is more uh, in a spread between German bonds and U.S. US bonds or U.S. treasuries. So when you look at the, the 10-year yield uh, differential between those two economies, those rates tend to converge when you get to, uh, very close to the end of the business cycle. Uh, so I guess it's another way of, of also protecting your portfolio uh, against, uh, you know, uh, perhaps a move in, 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 in the business cycle here. You know, it's it's actually a trade that has been working very well throughout the year, which, you know, is, is 10-year yields in the U.S. have been reducing, but also at the same time, you've had recently, especially German bonds yields starting to to move a little higher. So that convergence of, of the two rates is is something I think it's more a lot more attractive than being long treasuries on its own. The treasury part in our portfolio, we have a small position, short U.S. treasuries, more directional in it, but that's not, nothing big. It's more because we think that uh, inflationary risks are, are, are mispriced here today, given a lot of this um, uh, the macro indicators showing that you know inflation could be picking up. And I don't think it could take a lot of people by surprise. Interesting. Do, do you believe central banks can pump up, pump up liquidity and maintain this bubble for much longer? Do, do you try to time the market? I think that the, that's the one trillion dollar question. I wish I knew the answer. And I think the best <laughs> way to answer that question is really going back in history and look in seeing how how that worked. Um, and, uh, you know, the one instance we have here uh, to look back is in 06 and 07, when um, similar macro indicators are also deteriorating at the time. Uh, what we had was that global central banks are printing money at the time significantly. I think it was somewhere close to $2 trillion prior to the first QE from the Fed. That never really prevented the business cycle from turning. I think what people are maybe confusing here is is how I think, for instance, is that if there is liquidity from central banks, I don't think that liquidity will necessarily flow into risk on assets, especially stocks, uh, especially now at, at record valuations that we are today in, in so many fundamental factors you can look at. So, you know, I, I, I think that that's, you know, liquidity can be pumped up, but I think liquidity will really flow towards things like precious metals. And um, so I think that that's, uh, I think that's where the bet is in, in terms of, uh, of of the macro outlook, especially now with, I, I, I can't see a scenario in which, you know, the, the growth in the US here economically will pick up and also, you know, stocks, let's say stocks will rise here going forward in the next year or so. It's, it's really difficult to see uh, that happen without being uh, uh, pumped up by, by, you know, very extreme monetary policy, which would be positive 
positive for gold. So if anything here in this in this interview, I think that if there's one trade that I think it's it's going to work out very well in the following year or so is is being long the gold to S&P 500 ratio. Uh, in other words, I think that gold is going to rise and I think stocks could fall. So I think that ratio is likely to double in the next um, you know two to three years. Interesting. I have uh, spoken to many people this year on this podcast and uh, pretty much all of them have uh, recommended gold or if you prefer precious metals. Gold has gone up a bit this year uh, and you believe it's uh, it's just the beginning of a multi-year bull market in precious metals, right? I do. I think it's uh, we had a, a run up in 2016 uh, as, uh, right after that um, you know, final rate change in, in 2015, late 2015 and that caused a correction in the market. Gold prices begin to rise and then that only lasted until I guess August of uh, 2016 um, on you know gold and silver stocks and also the underlying uh, uh, physical gold and silver too. You know since then we've had a, a sort of another part of a continuation of the bear market, especially for the stocks part of it. Um, but I think that now you know we've uh, I think uh, um, Jim Grant put this very well in terms of uh, how to look at gold. You know it's it's almost like a function of looking at one divided by faith in central banks, <laughs> and I think that we've reached a a peak of uh, of uh, in terms of that faith. And I think that we're now, uh, you know, about to see a change in that. Um, I, you know, if, if, if we put together just a, a lot of the, the indicators today in terms of the CPI being at a decade high, you know, being record late in the business cycle, global debt being at historical levels, and, you know, the corporate debt problem that you just mentioned, central banks now easing. I think that that whole uh, scenario um, has to be uh, somewhat positive for precious metals. And I think I think it's a good bet. I think, I think uh, um, a lot of uh, mining stocks Stocks were um, have been depressed for since 2011, and there's a lot of value to be found in in, in that space. So we've been focusing a lot of, on that, um, and I think we're in the very early stages of of a bull market for uh, for the entire space. And I, uh, it's going to be. Uh, I think there's a lot of opportunities still ahead. Cool. Do you prefer gold over silver? I don't look so much that way. I think I look more in terms of uh, you know how to constru- construct a portfolio in terms of risk. Obviously, silver is a lot more volatile than gold, you know, so we have a, a larger position in gold and a smaller position in silver. Uh, doesn't mean uh, we liked one more than the other. I think we did prefer silver uh, before just because of the positioning on CFTC. But um, uh, today, you know, we've had uh, kind of a or, or standard position on those those two commodities. We've kind of added to uh, a few uh, precious metal stocks recently as as a lot of them pull back uh, since that run up that you're, you're talking about a, a few months ago. And I, I think a lot of them look very interesting technically and fundamentally. We've had a, a you know the luck to go to a few uh, conferences to meet a few of those CEOs, and I think there's a lot of stories there that are quite attractive. And 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 the whole you know bull case for for gold and silver mining uh, stocks looks you know very appealing. Interesting. You're betting on gold and precious metals, but you're not bearish on the U.S. dollar, are you? No. So the the bearishness of uh, in terms of of uh, is more in terms of risk on assets in general. And I think that the problem here is that, uh, uh, and that that's the, the, the issue with treasuries that is so hard to take a position on, on treasuries is because there truly is, there is a, a, you know, a deflationary force coming from China because of the currency. You know, the currency devaluation does cause a very large deflationary force worldwide. Uh, so I think that that's, <laughs> that's the biggest part that is, is hard to, uh, to, uh, to take a position. Uh, I think, you know, for instance, gold is rising for other reasons more 
more as a safe haven aspect of it, which is why we think it's so attractive. Now, answering your question, uh, no, we're, we're very bullish on, on the dollar, uh, especially relative to uh, to the Chinese renminbi and the Hong Kong dollar, just because the Hong Kong dollar has a very low implied volatility to uh, to bet against. You know, you don't have to take up a, a large position of your portfolio to uh, to put that position on. So, uh, you know, that's uh, that becomes uh, more interesting. In terms of China, you know, it's just looking at the credit bubble that we've seen build up in China with close to 400% normalized growth uh, in banking assets. It's, you know, close to $40 trillion of, of, of balance sheet assets, not even counting the off balance sheet assets. And China, if you looked at the, you know, this very indebted growth model, it can't afford a, a strong currency. So this entire, even this entire thesis, uh, you know, going back to like the, um, the trade agreement between US and China that we're going to have a currency backed, um, you know, I, I don't believe that that's even possible just because China can't afford having a stronger currency. Um, I think the non-performing loans problem is is a bigger problem than a lot of people think. And, you know, dilution in the currency is likely uh, uh, to, to happen in a, in a bigger way uh, going forward. Um, so, you know, if you put those uh, the part of the puzzle together, I think that uh, the dollar could rise significantly versus versus the Chinese renminbi. Uh, and that takes, you know, other trades to start looking interesting, you know, some of the emerging market currencies that um, uh, have performed have performed really well uh, throughout the year might might also get hurt because of that because they're very you know much derivatives of that China trade. Interesting. So uh, yeah, you're bearish on China. You mentioned this in the beginning. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about it? Um, I mean, what's your most likely scenario for China? Yeah, I think that China has you know the slowdown growth given that you know kind of a failing growth model of more debt and less GDP growth going forward is starting to to uh, to show some some real issues you know especially let's just look at the home builders space uh, we've done a lot of work on that you know it's a, it's a key part of this growth model in China and you know if you looked at that whole uh, industry uh, they've built they, they have you know accumulated close to like 600 billion dollars of net debt throughout since since 08 or so or actually it's outstanding today but since you know since 08 uh, they actually lost close to 250 billion dollars of cumulative uh, losses in free cash flow so it's uh, you know, significant um, those companies have been losing money for a long time um, we've had you know housing prices in in, in in China rising significantly Hong Kong doing the same and um, and now we're st starting to see what we've said we've been talking about for a long time which is the capital outflows pressure that you know the beginning of our thesis was really in our calculation a very large amount of illicit capital outflows uh, that was pressuring the currency on the downside and and, and actually forcing the PBOC to uh, to be short the dollar to really bet in the four markets to uh, to continue to manipulate the peg where it is today. And I know it's kind of over a lot of people's head when you talk about that, but um, I truly believe that, for instance, you know, a, a shrinking current account problem in China is a big deal. And you know, if, if you looked back in history and, and you put out you know a chart looking at several other countries that had that situation of shrinking current account, that tends to be very negative for their currency. You know, you can look at, for instance, uh, Argentina being one of the outliers, you know, losing close to 5% of the current account since 08. Uh, since 08. Um, and at the same time, its currency value lost, you know, close to 90% of its value. Now, I know that that's an extreme, but that's kind of the scenario that usually you see. Um, and the countries that have not had um, a devaluation of the currency while their current account has been uh, performing very poorly is, you know, is Hong Kong, China, and Saudi Arabia. 
Arabia, all those countries have packed currencies. At some point, those things, those imbalances begin to matter. Um, and I think China is starting to uh, to show some problems in terms of that. The way that we, we see how it's going to play out is especially on, on and, and, and again, bringing back gold to the, to the whole idea. When you look at gold itself, uh, yes, gold has not been performing well for the last years or so, but gold has done very well against currencies that have the value or emerging markets that have had issues before. Like, let's say gold in, in Brazilian real or gold in, in, in Turkish lira or gold in Argentinian peso or Venezuelan peso. There's so many examples of how gold has done really well in local currency terms. And, and that's how it's supposed to do during those periods. We think that in, in China, gold in renminbi terms is likely to rise as ultimately the way to play this 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 trade. Interesting what you mentioned just at the end. Uh, Simon Mikhailovich also came to this podcast and he said something around... Uh, Well, along those lines, uh, gold is an insurance when you need insurance. So it's doing its job when it's needed. And and, and if I can add something interesting on on the Hong Kong prote protests, which I think it's very much in line with this. Um, you're from Brazil. You know how political crises unfold. And usually, you know, you see some sort of either a recession or a currency crisis. I think those things kind of tend to work together. Now, in Hong Kong, in terms of the protests, there's kind of a... A kind of a key difference between protests in general. You have those protests sometimes are very political. Some others are more economic driven. And sometimes they can overlap too. Now, you know, in Brazil, for instance, in 2014 or so, when we had those protests that took Dilma out and impeached the president, I, I, I think that, you know, if you look, really look at the book of, of the problem, people are just fed up with the economic conditions in general. Unemployment was rising, inflation was rising, the dollar was rising. And, you know, that caused people to really go after And, and, and create social unrest and look for a political change. I thought initially the Hong Kong protest was a lot more, you know, uh, related to, to the democracy move. But now the more I, I research more about it, what I, I understand here is that, sure, there is a move towards that. But what's really here that is a lot more important and which makes this protest uh, a lot more serious than other protests is when it's driven by economic issues. And I think that that's very much what this is about, is people are fed up with their Their, you know, the, the, the standards of living uh, in, in, in Hong Kong, you know, house prices and, and low wages and so forth. And I think that that's really what's driving, because if it's not that, it's it's hard for something to be sustainable because it, what causes you is that people start getting hurt as they protest more, uh, either their jobs start doing more poorly or their businesses start doing more poorly. So they end up giving up on the situation. Now, when the economic situation is already bad, you know, it, it kind of gives you no reason for why not, am I not going to, you know, Know, uh, create a social unrest here. So it's. Uh, I think that that's very much what's what's happening in Hong Kong is is definitely that. It's uh, and why I think it's it's so critical to this whole China and Hong Kong credit bubble situation. Great, interesting. So Tavi, the three big themes that you uh, you and Crescat uh, are investing now seem very compelling. What signs do you have to see to change your mind? In other words, what would make you change your mind about uh, China and uh, the precious metals sector? I think um, there's a lot that would have to change. You know, I, I haven't seen much of the macro indicators in China in general moving, uh, you know, accelerating again. So, you know, in terms of, let's just say the U.S., for instance, the distortions between prices and fundamentals, in order for you to change that, you would have to see a significant improvement in fundamentals that would make those risk on assets cheaper again, or, you know, make make those investments uh, look more compelling, which is not the case. And it's it's kind of hard to see it. So you would 
would be calling for a soft landing scenario that is very um, unlikely, at least historically, especially when you reach levels that we've reached. So I think that that would be one thing, would be the improvement of the fundamentals of companies in general. Companies would have to be earning even more, which I think they're already peaked earnings and margins in, in, in you know, and, and, and still when you look at that relative to prices, it's just absurd. So that would have to be improved significantly if that's the case and prices would have to be where they are today. So those ratios, multiples would, would, would get much cheaper. Um, in terms of China, I mean, we haven't seen anything. I mean, w- w- the one thing we hear a lot is that China is going to kind of transition from this export-led economy to a consumer-led economy. And it's it's not really what's happening at all. You look at, you know, the sales of, of vehicles and, and, and retail sales in general in China, they're at multi-year lows. Nothing is picking up in terms of that. Credit growth is not picking up at all right now. I think that, that those are all, you know, very, very important parts of, uh, of of the Chinese economy. And now the other thing that could happen that could help China would be a shift here in, in terms of becoming more of a socialist economy here in the U.S. that I sure, you know, today a lot of the, the socialist parties in the U.S. have been taking the, the side of against China in a lot of the issues, especially in Hong Kong protests. But I think that could change very much if they if they take power because they know that, you know, having a, a, such a hawkish stance with uh, wouldn't go very much in line with uh, with uh, providing growth for, for the U.S. Um, so they would probably be forced to move the other way. So I hope I'm answering your question, but I think that those are the, the major parts. And I think the third part is we're going to, you know, for the gold uh, to not work and for me to change my view, would really see, um, you know, a, a deflationary signs all over uh, again, uh, things that we've, we've had had, um, you know, in the last uh, two business cycles, we kind of had, that's why treasuries worked out so great uh, during, during those two changes in the business cycle. And gold did really well in the tech bust, but not so well, at least in some parts of the 08, especially one or two months during that period. Now, now I don't I don't think, I think, politi- I think politically and, and in terms of monetary policy, things are just going to get more extreme as we go. Um, and, you know, and, and I think all those central banks are, are really on a corner now. Um, and I, you know, that, 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 you know, I think that there's no, it's kind of difficult to see a scenario in which a risk on assets will start doing really well without the intervention, the very strong intervention of those of those um, those parties. So uh, I hope I answered your question, but I think those are would be things I would be paying attention to, to uh, change my view. Brilliant. Thanks for that. Tavi, once again, many thanks for coming to this program and sharing your views with us. It was a pleasure to talk to you and um, let's see if we can meet up in Sao Paulo anytime soon and uh, go for a beer and a chat. Absolutely. It was a pleasure talking to you, Marcelo. And yeah, I would love to do that. Uh, get a caipirinha in Brazil. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Thanks, Tavi. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. If you like this podcast, feel free to forward it to your friends and colleagues. We appreciate your time, support, and your feedback. You can follow Marcelo Lopez on Twitter at MALopez1975. The information presented here is not investment advice and should not be taken as such. You should do your own due diligence and consult with your financial advisor before doing anything suggested or mentioned in this podcast. L2 Capital and its partners will not be liable for any losses that occur in doing whatever is discussed in this podcast.